Okay, welcome to the Embodiment Conference. My name is Mark Welsh, I'm your host today. I'll be mostly just introducing Stephen Gilligan and then shutting up and leaving him to it. So uh, one of the nice things about being the boss is I get to pick who I'm going to host uh, from across the different channels. And I looked at Stephen and said, oh, I want to do that one. Um, I've heard many, many good things about this man. He's considered one of the world's top hypnotherapists, change makers. Uh, got about 40 years experience in working with coaching, therapy, uh, training change. It's hard to sort of put him in a box really, but he's super experienced and, um, you know, I want to be here for my own education. So, um, Steve and sir, you're very welcome. Okay. Am I on? You are, sir. Over to you. Yeah. Somehow my, uh, speaker, uh, went down when you guys switched the screen. So I didn't hear it, Mark, but thank you. <laughs> so hello everybody. Uh, nice to see you all. Uh, I'm here in the middle of the day in uh, beautiful San Diego County. I'm looking at the ocean here. And um, this is a really um, meaningful, interesting event, I think. You know, uh, when I first heard that we'll have like um, 500,000 people, I mean, of course, the, the word that came out of my mouth is, was it's Woodstock. And I thought, okay, yeah, that was just a, sort of a funny quip. But I, I think in some ways, it's a really momentous thing, not, not the embodiment conference in and of itself, but the number of things that are happening at this time that are involved in this really integral, epic shift uh, in our, our whole world. Um, this, you know, I'm 65 years old. I grew up in San Francisco and came of age in the late 60s, went to an all-boys Jesuit high school right next to the Haight-Ashbury. Um, I've been on um, quite a journey. But I think that this last year has been the, moment, the most momentous of my 65 years. I mean, it feels like everything is shaking. And we've had, you know, the Me Too movement, and we're, you know, really on hanging by a thread environmentally, and that's a, a wake-up call. Uh, we've had the Black Lives Matter, and I think all of these things are are together telling us that we are going through a change, the likes of which we haven't seen for um, hundreds of years. So I think it is time for some Woodstock. So uh, Mark, thank you so much for bringing us together. Um, I don't think of this as the single event, but it's the sort of really significant. I don't, I don't know that 500,000 people have ever met um, in such a context. So um, something's calling us. Something is calling us to make a really, really deep death and rebirth cycle. So um, may we respond to it you know, and may what we do here um, be one little piece of that. Um, so I'm gonna talk to you just a little bit, not much in uh, 45 minutes um, to be able to, uh, sorry. Uh, Guys, my, there we go. 
um, to talk a little bit about the work that I've been doing uh, over 40 years that, that these days is called Creative Mind. And in terms of creative transformation, uh, I just want to mention you know, three basic general points of creative mind at the outset, which is um, everything is about creativity. Everything that we know as reality, we are actively participating um, in creating. Uh, we may feel subjectively that life is just something out there that we're passive recipients, but neuroscience, um, psychology, uh, everything is converging to really um, emphasize that we are creating reality. And by that, I don't mean just individuals. I don't even mean just humans. I'll talk a little bit more about that today. But this consciousness that is creating reality is coming through basic filters, sort of like light through prisms or light going through stained glass windows. And uh, the three sort of core minds or core, core general filters that we pay attention to in creative mind, uh, what we call the, the mind of the field, uh, uh, the mind of the body, and the mind of the, the cognit cognitive uh, intelligence. And we're really talking about how reality is constructed through this movement of information energy through those particular filters. And, and even more importantly, we're saying that as, as consciousness moves through these filters and creates some sort of reality, the most important thing is that there's a human presence that's holding it. And how that human presence is holding it really determines whether it has positive value or negative value, really determines whether it's something that extends and celebrates life or whether uh, the reality that we create um, goes into a very, very destructive mode. And I'm gonna be talking about this sense of either sort of this open connection uh, or this disconnection and saying that in, in working with people or working with whole groups or working with things like racism or sexism, that what we're really seeing is that these persistent suffering states are held into place by human presence that's operating at this with this principle of what I call neuromuscular lock. And your mission, should you decide to accept it, would be to um, how to open um, the human presence that's holding those filters. So what comes through um, gets created, get, emerges as something positive. So um, to begin to um, elaborate that idea, um, I want to start with a little poem. Um, I always like to begin with a poem, partly to honor my Irish roots and partly really to emphasize that when we're talking about creative change, we cannot use literality as our primary language. We need to use a language that precedes um, experience, that moves through, that opens up beyond words. So poetry uh, is one of the artistic traditions that does just that. 
when you hear a beautiful poem, it's not so much that it's happening here, it touches you here and it opens something that you never would have imagined up here. And so if we're really looking to support creative consciousness, we really have to use uh, language uh, in this more embodied poetic way. One of our uh, great American poets, Mary Oliver, just died a couple of years ago, uh, and she was beloved by many. Um, this poem called Wild Geese is one of her most well-known. Um, and uh, it talks about this tradition that's actually happening right now, where uh, as winter begins to come, you can see in certain places, I, I heard they're up in Washington state right now, but you see flying down uh, over the Northeast, huge, huge skies uh, full of geese. And they're going for their summer home and they go for the warm weather. And then in the spring, you see again, hey, they're coming back, but they're going the other direction. So you see these wild geese, uh, she says, high in the clean blue air, heading home again. And that's what we're called to do, I believe. Anytime that we're having a crisis, like now, is that something is calling us back home so that we can go through a death and a rebirth cycle. So here's how Mary Oliver describes it. For all recovering Catholics like myself, the first line is probably the most important. You do not have to be good. Why didn't they tell me? You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air, they're heading home again, come back. So no matter who you are, how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination. It calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. Now we know why she was so beloved. Huh? So I hope you can hear in that poem, she's, she's really talking about these three minds. She's talking about uh, that in order to have this reconnection, we have to let go of the cognitive mind, which is sort of set uh, in our uh, default value uh, in, our, in our present uh, circumstances, in this disembodied intellect that believes its job is to control and analyze everything. So we need to let go of that. You need to lose your mind, so to speak, and come back to the felt sense in your body, somatic mind. Somatic mind always precedes 
the cognitive mind um, in creativity. The somatic mind not only recognizes something, but has an evaluation as this friend or foe in 200 milliseconds. The uh, verbal mind, it takes about 600 to 800 milliseconds. So, so the, the somatic mind is so much faster and so much more connected to a primary level of experience. And then once we uh, move into that somatic resonance, that, that uh, felt sense in the body, we return to our true home, which is the field. So the field is this more general space from which we, we are situated, from which we arise, has many, many different levels. You could say in the Buddhist tradition, emptiness, shunyata is, is a field. Uh, the great, uh, late great Swiss philosopher, Gene Gebsner, calls it the ever-present origin. Uh, my teacher, Milton Erickson, used to call it the middle of nowhere. And he loved to bring people to the middle of nowhere, kind of as a way to just let go of everything and, and start reconnecting with the source of creativity. The social field, the cultural field, your family field, your vocational field, where you live, these are all different fields. Right? So what we're looking at then in, in the work is, is how creativity starts in this field, enters through the somatic mind, and then is met in some way by the cognitive mind who, whose real task, I believe, is to humanize the soul. It, it's to bring human connection, human value to whatever is arising in the present moment. So that's when the system is, is working well. And we would say that uh, we, we call this generative connection. There's a connection to the field. If there's one sort of heuristic principle that we could use, we'd say open presence. Open presence. It's not just something you learn in, in meditation. I studied Aikido for 18 years, center, drop into center, open into field. Okay. So if we can have that open presence, then we can be able to receive whatever is trying to wake up next. As it comes into the somatic mind, we need to have some sense of what Eugene Genling called felt sense or relational resonance. So the body is not these sort of uh, literal emotions that you're trying to control or express muscularly. The, the first body is what we would call a body of light. It's an unwounded, unwoundable, subtle body. And given that it, it's made of light, how, how do you wound light? You know, you, you, no matter what happens, that base of your somatic being is there. You can muscle over it, which happens very often. And so you're actually only feeling this outer muscular tension, but no matter how traumatized somebody has been, their, their unwounded spirit is always there. It's always right there. So your mission, should you decide to accept it, is to feel it in you, to feel it 
in your partner and then let the conversation open under that. And then the, what we would call the, the positive version, uh, uh, integrated version of the cognitive mind, again, is not something that is analyzing or controlling or disembodied. It is this embodied presence that is, is connected somatically, open to the field. And so it's really its main function is what I would call positive sponsorship. The word spons, sponsere is a Latin word that means to, to make a vow, uh, to make a commitment. And so the commitment is to awakening. The commitment is to bring positive value. The commitment is to be able to help whatever is there be able to open into full human being. So that's the the, the sort of the, the generative working view of what we would call a creative state or a generative state. Um, often when people, if, if you're a, a therapist or a coach, or if you're just a human being walking around in the world, often uh, these three minds are locked, what we call neuromuscular lock, brain, mind, body lock. And that is what I would really suggest. This is the common principle of all persistent suffering, not suffering, you know, because suffering is just there as a part of life, no matter what you do. But as coaches or therapists, the sort of suffering that we're dealing with is suffering that won't go away. And so we're, we're seeing that that persistence is a function of this neuromuscular lock in some way. So the field mind, you know, it feels threatening or you see people or uh, people might report being in a fog or people might report feeling that there are these negative voices, you know, that are outside their head. Uh, people might feel like, like there's, there's nothing there. So those are descriptions, not of the original field mind, those are the descriptions of that field of light, if you will, subtle light, that is being held with neuromuscular lock. And so experience that it's not safe out there. The world is not safe. People, I can't trust myself to be visible to other people. The somatic mind, correspondingly, is in this reactive state what in psychology is sometimes called the, the, the four Fs in English, fight, flight, freeze, and fold. Okay. So these are sort of extended versions of the natural orienting response, which in neuropsychology, anytime something unexpected comes through, your body just goes into this temporary neuromuscular lock. What's that? But if you feel that you can't stay in that experience, you dissociate and your body goes in, into this neuromuscular lock. I'm in uh, walking around in anger or resentment. I'm walking around in fear. I'm walking around in, with my disembodied uh, intellect. I just feel sort of dead or depressed or I use drugs or alcohol to just sort of numb my, my somatic body. And the, the cognitive mind is in this negative 
sponsorship. It's it's self-critical. It's telling you you're no good. It's it's analyzing. It, it tells you your body is ugly, what have you. These are what we will call the the negative hypnotists, if you will, that are part of the neuromuscular lock version of the cognitive mind. So what, what's really important is to know that these are not the original mind. These are not forever. In fact, you have to be recreating them in every moment. Usually those recreation patterns are automatic, they're conditioned, so you're not really consciously aware. But how do you stay depressed? You know, what is it you do with your breathing patterns? What is it that you do with your posture? What is it that you do with your eyes that would continue to create a state of depression? And we, we don't say that. I'm not saying that to blame people. I mean, we don't want people to think, oh, great, I feel totally horrible. Now you're telling me it's my fault. No, we're not saying that. What we're, what we're saying is that we can see that experience reality is created every moment by the way that you are tuning your field, your body, and your cognitive mind. And so we can have conversations where we can help people shift those tunings, if you will. So um, before I talk more about that, um, if you want to see a really good example of field, somatic, cognitive, just hang out with a kid for a day. You know, my daughter is now 28, but when she was young, people say, oh, she's so cute. I say, yes, she's cute. And she's much, 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 much more. So you see uh, in a child, they channel the universe. So by the end of the day, every experience known to humankind um, has entered into that, that child's nervous system. And that's why they sleep so deeply at night. That's why their parents are like, oh, yeah, yeah. So let's think of some of those experiences in terms of the somatic cognitive interface. When Zoe, my daughter, was three, she was right out here in, in the backyard. Um, she was playing with a friend. Her friend had the audacity to take Zoe's toy. Zoe promptly picked up a bat. Luckily, it was a plastic bat. And hit her friend over the head with the bat. You took my toy. That's an interesting parenting moment, isn't it? Yeah. Those are your parents, I'm sure. You've had a number of experiences like that. What do you do? Because for the first half of life, the grown-ups, the parents, the family, is the child's cognitive mind, primarily. Right? So it's what you say, how you meet, how you greet this sort of uh, archetypal, ancestral, only half-human experience coming through the body. How you engage with it is what, what shapes it into its value and its form. So suppose you say to that child, uh, you take, you say to her, sweetheart, I'm so happy that you're expressing your feelings. I always want you 
to express exactly how you feel. So if you feel like hitting your friend over the head, great, that's fantastic. I don't think so. But the opposite side would, if you say, take that bat and start hitting the child over the head and say, we don't do that in this family. We don't do that. Don't ever, ever, and you're a girl besides. Girls are only supposed to be nice. And she says, okay, daddy, I'll just be nice. And so she now walks around in a room. So that whole connection from the ancestral field in the body is this uh, warrior energy, this, this sort of core universal energy to be able to have boundaries, to say no, to be fierce is sort of locked into, it's not okay that you bring that in the world that is not welcome here. Okay. And secondly, um, you you should only have a nice face. <laughs> okay, daddy, you have this be nice. So now she goes along and for maybe 30 years, she's just a nice girl until that fateful day where some stranger sort of just nudges her accidentally and she picks up a bat, this time uh, an iron rod, and bludgeons the poor guy. And people say, I don't know what got into her. She's such a nice girl. So we would say that, I mean, that would be an example of this sense of the experience coming out of the field through the body. And if it's met by the social cognitive representatives in this way, that have neuromuscular lock, so you press, or if you say, watch me play, and and your mother is depressed and she doesn't see you. If you say, look at this, watch this, as you see kids do over and over and over, say, will you please be quiet, can't you see we're trying to work? Those are the uh, cognitive connections to the somatic, that will put the somatic in a state of persistent disconnection. What's there is bad. It has no human value. It cannot be part of your regular presenting self. And so you either just sort of go dead and live out your life in what Thoreau called lives of quiet desperation, or that becomes your symptom. You know, you're nice until you're not, and when you're not, you, you are really a destructively angry person. So what we're trying to do again is to see that it's the human disconnection from those energies. That's what makes it a problem. And the human connection with it, which is a skill, it's a mature skill. It's one that you really have to cultivate. Uh, to awaken yourself, to be a good parent, to be a good intimacy partner. Um, but if you can bring that human positive presence, open feel, open presence, resonant relationship, I feel me, felt sense, I feel you. And I know how to be able to have words that are able to give blessing to what's there and to let each position in the field have a voice that opens like a flower. So I just want to say uh, one, one thing just briefly. 
if if we just thought disconnection is bad, connection is good, it would be it would sort of make things a lot easier if that was the case. But part of what makes it so prevalent is disconnection is at the heart of self-awareness. And we humans seem to be the first beings on the planet to be able to leave the present moment, to say, stop, I'm going to think, hmm, and to be able to put a pause on the present moment and to go into an infinite number of virtual realities. That is what has created the amazing miracles of creativity over the last, say, 10,000 years. But it's also what has led to these um, um, astonishing destructive acts that have brought in, we've just been on the planet for a blink of an eye, but we have brought the planet to the edge of extinction. So that capacity of human consciousness, my dog can't do it, right? Trees can't do it, right? This sense of I'm here in my somatic form, but I want to consider, let me imagine I'm 10 years in the future. Let, let me imagine I'm a thousand years in the past. Let me imagine I'm in your shoes. Let me imagine this, let me imagine that. That is the amazing generative beauty of human being. As long as we come back. You know, so the, the brain, I think one of the reasons we have two brains is it's meant to go from embodied connection where we feel the wholeness of life, that's the nonverbal brain, to uh, this in, in embodied uh, stepping out of time in the body just for a moment and to be able to imagine other possibilities. If we have that conversation between total connection to the present moment and then opening to, but what about this? What about this? What about this? That I think is the real heart of human connection. And I think partly because we're so young at it. You know, we're basically like one and a half year olds in terms of language and locomotion with this emergent property of self-awareness that we're really, really messing it up very, very badly. So I think this epic change that I was talking about uh, that's happening, I think, everywhere is, is really a sort of a calling to move into what, uh, as I mentioned, this, the Swiss philosopher Gebsner called the, the movement from the mentalist era, which was kind of, he says 500 years back to the enlightenment to an integral era and the integral cognitive mind, um, somatic mind, uh, my position, your position, uh, male and female. It's a community of mind where there's a flowing connection between each of them. And the, the attention can be focused on one point or one truth at one point, but you can keep the underlying presence of one field, one embodied connection, so that that differentiation really can be basically like an improvisation. I mean, when you play something like jazz or when you do good therapeutic work, 
every moment is a fresh moment. And, and this beauty of disconnection is that what, where you were just the last moment, you are free to go anywhere. You are free to go from here, I can go there, I can go there, I can go there, I can go there, I can go there. It's called play. It's also the heart of the mature creativity that we are called into, um, stepping into at this point. Okay. So I uh, just want to give you a couple of uh, cases and then we'll open to a few questions or comments um, in terms of how this might be um, applied. 50 year old woman came to see me. She was a mathematician. Uh, she worked in a university. Her father was a mathematician um, and her father unexpectedly died of a heart attack. He was 72, was by all measures, very healthy. He died. She came in, she said, I don't know how to go forward with my life. It's an interesting statement, right? I would like to go forward, but I don't know how because my dad was always the guy that I could rely on whenever I needed a resource, dad was there. And now that he's gone, how do I go forward? Interesting question, right? If we ask that question here, hmm, hmm, you're not going to come up with anything interesting, okay? When you come to the limits of where you've been so far, okay, I was 50 years, I had my dad, I got here, but now in order to go forward, I have to do something totally different. That's where your verbal mind is really in the way. That's where you need to drop down and feel what creative consciousness is trying to give you. So I said, okay, let's imagine sort of a timeline and you uh, standing here and you have a feeling of connection with yourself and you have a sense of say the next six months of your life and you have a sense that you're on a threshold and you need to take a new step. Just tune to that and then tell me what you're aware of. And she said, I just have this panic in my chest. So the old Western psychological term, the, the patient has panic, let's increase the medication, I think is an act of violence and it's very unintelligent. So isn't that interesting? that when you think about the future, is that something in your body says, hey, pay attention to me, wait for me. And, and in that state, her westernized modern mind calls that panic. Okay? So what if we just put that word aside and say something's trying to wake up and drop down in ourselves Drop into center, open into field. Something's trying to wake up. Something's trying to heal. Say, Isn't that interesting? As you think about going forward, some really strong presence shows up in your chest. I, I would like to say to that presence, welcome. Welcome. Okay. Usually most clients take a breath here. It's like the body 
has been welcomed to the tea ceremony. Some people got a little bit scared, which is great news. They need boundaries. Let's hear that sense. They said, if you brought your hand here to your chest and just breathe with it and say, isn't it interesting that as you go to go forward in this next part of your life, something is there in your chest. Let's breathe. Tell me what happened. She says, it's like there's an elephant and the elephant has got its leg, its foot on my chest. Oh my God, more medication. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that amazing? That when you thought about, when you think about your dad, an elephant shows up. I find that really, really amazing. Of course, your, your nonverbal music is really important in how you would communicate this. So I would like to say to that elephant, welcome. I'm sure that you're bringing something um, really, really important. Welcome. And just breathe with that and, and notice what happens there. So she, she sort of pauses and then she bursts out laughing. And she says, I, I was the elephant like turned around uh, and, and was, her trunk was, is facing out in the world and it began to move its trunk. Amazing. Now she happened to be a student of, of Hindu cosmology and mythology. And you may know that uh, the, the elephant, Ganesh, Ganesh, is the remover of obstacles. Isn't that interesting? So she's come to this really significant transformational place in her journey and she can't go forward here so the creative consciousness sends her buddy Ganesh and so she really we, we sort of just explored how she as she thought about going forward and as she actually went forward Ganesh would be clearing the way so much for panic Right? So that, that's an example of what we're trying to do. We're saying creative consciousness is coming through every person, every group, every culture, every tree, every mammal at every moment in time. It becomes a non-trivial issue when you get to humans because how we meet and greet this creative consciousness is, is really, we, we have total freedom. So the point is, if we meet it in this negative state, you know, a contracted field, um, neuromuscularly locked body, fight, flight, freeze, fold, um, disembodied intellect who feels uh, uh, like an ego has to control and understand everything, you're in for long. Right. But if you can move to open presence, what I learned in Aikido, what I've learned from so a lot of from my teachers, it's Milton Erickson always at the top, drop down. Open up. Be curious. 
about how to play music, how to do Aikido, Aikido, uh, how to be able to have this relationship so that whatever is there, we can feel the light and the spirit at the heart of it. And we can bring human connection to allow it to come into the world in a way that has positive human value. So that's what I am, uh, that's a brief uh, overview of the work. It's not, you know, we don't have much time. So I think I'll stop there. And uh, if we have any questions, and I'm not sure quite how to handle that. Is it uh, Matthew? Yeah, we can invite questions. There's one. Yeah, we can turn the, I'll, I'll turn this off. I'm going to turn my. Uh... Uh, my power, this thing. I'll turn this on you are viewing. And I want to share. That's over there. Sorry, wrong computer. I'm using two computers. Okay, there we go. All right, anybody? So two questions straight yeah. off in the, in a box. Um, crossing fields. How does ontological change connect with your model? Well, uh, you know, uh, there's the, the old um, biological principle, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. I'm sure uh, all of you carry that around with you every day. Um, but we, we see the unfolding of the individual, the ontology, as sort of repeating the unfolding of the species. So you see it in terms of, you know, a lot of people now think the first human language was music, you know, and then poetry and then literality. So uh, you hear, you see in babies, their first words are not, that's very interesting. What do you think the research is? But their first language is ba 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 ba. So, so we see this individual unfolding, not only as the unique life of each person, and then, you know, things like all these different developmental models can be helpful, but we see it as also re-unfolding the life of the family, the life of the culture, the life of the species. And so what we're talking about is this resonance between these different levels, between individual unfolding and what we would call the field mind unfolding. That, that is, is what we're looking to do. That gives a positive constraint for art to exist. Just as an example, um, I had a friend, she's a, uh, she's a student and she's so brilliant, so bright. And she came in and she said, I've got this new project. I want to develop this institute for um, machine-human partnership. She said, what do you think about that? I said, that's, I think it's a terrible idea. I think it's a terrible idea. It's the worst idea I've ever heard you had. And why would I say that? Because machines are not grounded in the history of consciousness. And so they're free to do anything you program them to do. But if they're disconnected from the planet and from the culture and from the whole community, the way that they will unfold 
will not be positively constrained by the connection to the larger whole. Hope that answers that. Thank you. Mark, there are a few questions that are popping up. Do you, as a host role, did you want to, to guide Stephen through them? Let's relax on the sofa. Um, in order, uh, there's a question about your story. For your client, did embracing Ganesh continue to keep the panic resolved? Absolutely. I, I mean, let, let me put it this way. A lot of times people are hoping that when they do the work with you, the problem, in this case, if you would use a traditional term panic, will go away forever and never, never come back. You know, it's a grow up. That panic, or if you're like Irish, that depression is going to visit you throughout your life. You know, what is changing is the meaning you give it and the relationship you have with it. So what we're really looking to do in the work is identify when you feel panic, quote unquote, if we use that term, that's, that is a sign, time to come back to center. So we're using all of the trigger points as part of the, the reorganization of the response to it. Thanks, Stephen. Sorry, my tech wasn't working there for a minute. Don't worry. Uh, what's your approach to PTSD, Stephen? Is quite a few people asking about trauma and complex PTSD. Yeah, and by the way, I saw you uh, moderate that panel uh, on uh, trauma. With, I thought that was just absolutely awesome. Uh, I, I, you know, for about thirty years as a psychotherapist, my sort of my two main populations were traumatized people and uh, couples, uh, and. Firstly, you know, what, what the folks were saying on the panel, uh, I watched it last night, about one in two Americans will experience what would be called by any strict condition, severe trauma, at least once in their life. Only about uh, one in five, one in four to one in five will develop PTSD. So really nasty shit happens to people. You know, if you're a human being, it's probably gonna to happen to you, you know? Uh, but the question is, what are the conditions or the responses that would take probably, what, whether, you, whether you find your resilience or not, you will remember it's the worst thing that ever happened to you. You would not wish it upon your enemies. But about four out of people do something so it doesn't get locked in their nervous system and utterly dominate and define their life, right? So that's what I think is, you know, in, in, in psychology, I think in psychology, it's been a pretty bleak uh, 20, year, 20 years in American psychology. I think the two really nice things have been the introduction of mindfulness. I mean, who would have guessed, predicted, that mindfulness would enter into the center of cognitive behavior therapy. Mm -hmm. It's a miracle. And trauma, not only our understanding of trauma, but our treatment of trauma. So you get whacked, you have to temporarily shut down and as an act of self-love go away. But dissociation is a really good short-term strategy. It sucks as a long-term strategy. 
And so all of those PTSD sequelae, you know, fl flashbacks, depression, social anxiety, uh, using uh, 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 self-medication, th those are all attempts to soothe center. So we're saying, okay, that's what your system is doing. Uh, same with any addiction. Uh, let's welcome that. Let's create a conversation where we can be grounded and connected to a lot of things besides the trauma, which is an interesting task. And then let's begin to bring the mind in a positive way to the source of the trauma. To do that, one more thing, it's really important to know, to remember as a therapist or a coach, the suffering is never the original condition or the deepest part of the person. The suffering marks the place where the light is strongest, but that light that is in the center is undamaged. So, it, so you have to feel it and then realize there's a whole lot of shaking going on. But if you feel their center, which you know, is really what we do in Aikido, if we feel our center and then the center that's deeper than the trauma, then you can begin to carefully begin to have a person reconnect and then release that secondary level of trauma. Uh, what happened to Mark? Yes, probably another tech issue. He's, he's right in the center of, um, of it all in, in London. And yeah, no worries. So uh, are we at uh, our time? Or? Not quite. Guys, sorry? Hi, Stephen. I think we've had some tech issues here. I haven't seen this one before, actually, in the conference. We're, we're three minutes to the end, if you could. Yeah. Um, wow. It's, oh, there you are. I thought you were just in the middle of ethereal space. We disappeared for a moment. So do you want me to, yeah. Do you want me to answer another question or give a wrap up? I think it's time to wrap up. Um, if you could come to your conclusion and then I'll bring you back in for the final comment after some practicalities. Uh, so just one simple example. Somebody said, I want to finish. I've got to finish writing this book, but I end up procrastinating. So if we looked at that, what we call somatic model center. Show me your model, model, somatic model with your body. I have to finish this, this book. <laughs> it's a little bit surprising. Now, how, much, how long do you think you can keep this up? All right, and then show me your somatic model of procrastination, which was interesting. I, I would have thought it would be different. Can you see this and this as completing each other? And what would allow you to take this and this and have them as a positive experience? That's what we talk about centering. I want to finish the book. And when I do that, something says, first, you need to do this. That's great. So that would be uh, another example. So. I'm just going to end with this very brief poem. This is by another one of our really great American poets, Jane Hirschfield. She's also a translator of J. 
Japanese female haiku poets. You can sort of hear this haiku flavor. It's not a formal haiku, but it's really about this sense of a centered openness that allows creative compassion. It's called late prayer. So tenderness does not choose its own usage. It goes out to everything equally. Circling rabbit and hawk. Look, in the iron bucket, a single nail, a single ruby, all the heavens and all the hells. They rattle in the heart and they make one sound. So that's what we're trying to open so that you can be able to have uh, equal uh, presence with the heavens and the hells that you will encounter every day. Okay, that's it, Mark. Thank you, Stephen. We're having tech difficulties here. So Matthew, can you wrap up? Because I'm not trusting the tech here now. <laughs> thank you, Mark. Um, thank you, thank you, Stephen. I'm oh, your so... inner child has come out, huh? How about that? <laughs> Meet me at my uh, Hello. Hello. Uh, Stephen, in a moment, I'm, and there's just repat aspects of that. In a moment, I would like you, as I'm doing that, to think of what is your top tip for embodiment for the conference. So give yourself a moment to think about that. Yeah, uh, your top tip. Um, yeah, have a look at the, the rest of the speakers on the, the, the role. We've got some extraordinary characters. Stephen, of course, is, is a beautiful part of that. Um, there are Facebook groups, coffee meeting spaces within the portal. Uh, please join them. And of course, this whole conference is, um, is free to all for the next 48 hours of each, uh, of each piece. Think about buying it. it. It enables us to put this on. It enables great things to happen in the world. It's a, it's a great price at the moment too. Um, I'm not sure it's the greatest wrap, but Stephen, your top tip for embodiment. What would your top tip Keep be? it simple and drop down in center, open into field, feel the resonance of connection going back and forth so that everything is included. Stephen, that's, that's a message I have heard from you over decades. I really appreciate your, your bringing that to the world and, uh, and introducing that to our conference. It's a pleasure. It's a great, great pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Can't see you, but I know you're all over the world. Take good care. Thank you, Stephen. You never give away for Stephen.